Hey, Justin. Hey, Cameron. Hey, Peyton. What's up, Cam? Hi, Justin. Hello. All right. We, we do have a, a guest for this episode, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, you know, as we briefly talked about before we started this show, and, uh, you know, I think it's important to at least acknowledge what's going on at the moment. I mean, the only thing I have to say about it is that I think this is a prime time to acknowledge if you're not knowledgeable enough to speak on it. And now is the time to listen. So that's a, I have not talked a lot about it because mm -hmm. I'm trying to put a focus on educating myself and listening. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know a lot about it, I would encourage you to do the same thing. No, I think you make an excellent point. That's what we're starting to see in sports is a lot of athletes that have good leadership skills that we don't necessarily hear about so much in the NHL because there's so much that stereotype of robotic nature in hockey players that we hear of and that it's cliche statements, yet we've seen so many leaders stepping up and saying great thought-provoking things about being a leader, but being a leader by listening and saying, I'm never going to understand, but I'm going to do my best to understand what it is like. I'm going to listen. I'm going to learn. I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to do whatever I can to be an ally. And to have personality like that come out of hockey players has been really big for this. I mean, Jonathan Taves had an excellent statement come out. Patrice Bergeron yes. had an excellent statement come out. And those are the kind of statements I think people wanted to see and not ones that are so corporate coming from big organizations where you know it's had to go the, through the filter of how many people, right? But seeing it come through a hockey player, which has probably went through a filter of their team's PR and their agent and whatnot, but you can tell it's way more sincere and heartfelt because it is in their words. And you can tell that they're truly putting some thought behind it. Braden Holtby, another one, had an excellent, excellent statement there too, just in D.C. of what, what he notices in D.C. And so we're seeing a lot of true leaders step up in terms of hockey. I mean, related to hockey because it's a hockey podcast here and the racism that exists in hockey. We've, we've seen it so much through so many different players and Akeem Alou comes to mind for me as well and that there's so many things that we need to fix in in hockey just as the sport that we love and if we can fix those little things here that can lead to bigger change and that's kind of what I have focused on as well is hey what something that we're involved in that we love and if we can do that little part of it it helps lead to changing overall culture um, and so that's what's been really great to see in that and even sport like so a very white sport with hockey also a very white sport with NASCAR and seeing Ty Dillon uh, come out and, and have a statement and then have an Instagram live with Bubba Wallace. I mean, those are the little steps that you want to see taken in, in sports like that to where they're having conversations. And that's what it's about is communication. Yeah. One thing I've really tried to educate myself on and learn about is to acknowledge the fact that, you know, there's something all of us can do within ourselves to better this path. I think, um, you know, from what I understand, and there's a lot of damage that goes into thinking like, well, it's not me. Well, <clears throat> it still could be. And you need to over-evaluate yourself and make sure you're part of the solution. Absolutely. So, hey, Peyton. <laughs> What's up, guys? <laughs> if, I, if I can add one thing to that, I'm just really impressed to see the response worldwide, places big and small, even in the tiny town I live in in the Boot Hill of Missouri there was a protest march up street down for me so it's good that basically I mean just about everyone is saying enough is enough absolutely and and that's what that's when you know it's a much bigger deal with history when you have multiple countries when you have every single state when you have small communities and people standing up it's not an isolated issue it is a systemic issue 
it's a societal issue that we need to deal with. So yeah, exactly. Totally agree with your point. Yeah. All 50 States within like six days. Like that's really amazing. Yeah. So yeah. Hey, be the change people and hockey is work and start right there with you. Just little things, correct people. We hear it all the time, you know, silence. It's not always the best thing when it comes to that. When you, when you have an opportunity to speak up and correct someone for bad behavior, do that. That's the, that's the way that you make little changes and differences to correct people. And you know what, if they're saying those things, they're not going to like it. But if there are children present, if there are other people present, they see you correcting bad behavior and wrong behavior, and they know what stands up to be right. And they know the good things and how you're supposed to live your life and how you're supposed to treat other human beings as well and how to treat your neighbor. Absolutely. Okay. Well, how, how do we transition safely out of such a heavy topic? But we're By gonna... just, just going with the transition. <laughs> By we're... transitioning to another heavy topic. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, well, prompting change in a positive way. We talked briefly, on, well, more than briefly on our last episode about um, UAH hockey down in Huntsville and the troubles that they went through and a lot of progress has been made. Justin. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're handed over to me. Yeah. So we were talking about the, what seemed like insurmountable goal. That was, yeah. the, and then they blew right past it. They blew right past the goal with the t-shirt sales and the GoFundMe. And so that's where we thought going into last weekend was like, yes, okay, they got it back. And then more news came out yesterday about, um, head coach, Mike Corbett, um, and uh, assistant coach Gavin, uh, Morgan, resigning only one left behind as well and so that's why we wanted to bring on Payne Turnage he's the voice of the University of Alabama and Huntsville hockey program down there so it's been a roller coaster of emotions I'm sure for you Payton so take us through just what you've been experiencing because this is it's a big deal for you you're calling division one hockey and you're just not knowing what's going on and then hearing all this news so kind of break it down for those of you that maybe haven't heard your story before with this I mean it hit me like a ton of bricks uh, a couple weeks ago uh but not to be all pity party, but I had just lost my job in Nashville, had just moved out of Nashville the day before, had come down with a sickness, and then learned the news that UAH hockey is, uh, would be no more. And that was a couple Fridays ago, and then it was the following Monday that it was announced that the president had reached a deal that if, if they could raise enough money uh, by Friday of that week, that, uh, that UAH hockey would indeed be saved. And it's, it took a complete community effort, not just the Huntsville community, but just the overall hockey community to get it done. But uh, like you said, Justin, they blew past the goal and, and off we go. And we got the green light to, to play hockey in 2020, 2021. But uh, not out of the woods yet. As you say, there's a lot that's gone down this week um, with the resignation of Mike Corbett and Gavin Morgan and Lance West staying on board, being the interim head coach for now. There's questions of who's going to be next, if, if he's the one or if there's someone else. And then there's been a lot of transfers, a lot of people that have left the Chargers or are decommitted. So although we got a lot of positive news, there's still – I mean, it's still quite a roller coaster ride. Um, taking it back to square one, when you had just heard about, you know, what goals would have to be achieved in order for this program to continue, what was your initial reaction I, I was very skeptical. I thought, you know, here's UAH, their education first. It's a degree granting institution. Uh, everyone is in a tough financial time. How are we going to raise $500,000 by a community 
uh, to get it done. So I really didn't think it was going to be possible. But then we got about a day and a half in, and there was 150000 raised. And I thought, wow, this is really gaining steam. And so I started donating, started sharing. And, and sure enough, uh, I would say by Thursday, I mean, the numbers were just ramping up tremendously. Yeah, that was my initial reaction as well. Just like, you know, this hits on a Memorial Day weekend. There's four business days before that final deadline, end of day Friday. It just, I kept saying like, you know, it's it's great that they've raised so much in such little time, but there's still a lot ways to go. And I was saying that to the very end. And then, and then you had NHL players and big time broadcasters get involved. So you have Cam Talbot doing a big thing. The Patrick Kane, even in tweeting about it, Dylan Strom, um, Ina Stroza, then John Buchagross pushed it out there. So the awareness in the hockey community was definitely there about this. And so to you, Peyton, just what did that mean to see so many different people in the hockey community coming together for the program that you've been a part of for a few years? Well, you saw people that weren't even uh, – didn't have any affiliation to the Huntsville or Nashville hockey communities, like you mentioned, Patrick Kane. Um, there were there was even Brian Burke, uh, Mark Recchi were guys that donated, just guys that you wouldn't think of, but I guess that do have a deep respect for college hockey and didn't want to see Alabama Huntsville go down the tubes. So there's, you know, those guys, even Patrick Kane especially, have, have all the appreciation from my heart and uh, even more respect for sure. So it's no secret that this is going to be a rocky path moving forward. What type of changes do you need to see in order to consider this something that's sustainable long-term? Number one automatically goes to marketing. Um, you know, we saw a lot of uh, games that were played in front of a virtually empty building. And the Von Braun Center in Huntsville holds, you know, about 6,000 people. And we'd see on average maybe 500. Maybe that's being generous every night. And meanwhile, the Huntsville Havoc sell out just about every night. And so – I think number one comes down to marketing. You've got to, on the very basic, let people know when the games are going to be played and um, just need to have a bigger foothold on the city. So that's what it comes down to uh, for that. And then, you know, we're already seeing changing with the the coaching. Uh, You know, the team only won two games last year, and so we need to see a big-time improvement on the ice. And and there's going to have to be some big-time recruitment this summer to make sure that that at least happens. And so so to look back on Mike Corbett's tenure and everything too, and he took full responsibility for his record uh, when I spoke with him a couple weeks ago. So looking at this though, aside from the record and everything, Mike Corbett seemed to be the, it was a difficult position that he was in recruiting wise as well, because the way that each league, and this is getting more in inside baseball for, for recruiting everything, every league in college hockey is different with how they recruit. You have some leagues that are recruiting directly out of high school or out of minor juniors. Then, for instance, the WCHA and especially UAH was usually recruiting kids out of other junior programs, especially in Canada. So you have freshmen that are, you know, 20, 21 years old sometimes. I mean, Josh Kessner, I think, graduated when he was 25. <laughs> so, Sounds right. Yeah, so it's, it's a very unique situation there as well, too. So in looking at this, what are some of those other things that you think, especially with these kids that are transferring now, what's going to be the key to help making this sustainable from, from a recruiting standpoint and from a standpoint on, on the ice? Because there are some unique players that have some talent, but then maybe they just couldn't put it together there as well too. So was it the kind of thing where it was 
blaming it on the coach or was it not enough, you know, from behind the university? What are some of those little things too the university can do to improve that's not just blaming it on a coach? It's hard for me to say. I think there just has to be overall buy-in from literally everyone that's involved that, that shows that this program really is for real. Like this is, this is a D1 program. And um, I think it's just everything when it comes to um, everything you see on the ice, the training, the equipment, um, like I said, the marketing, the, the fan turnout, everything's got to come together this year. This is such a pivotal year for uh, UAH hockey. Okay, so to build on that too, especially because you saw all the home games, especially, I mean, away games being able to stream as well. There are so many games where this team was close. Mm-hmm. That maybe they even had a lead, but went into the third and then blew it. Or they lost by one, or they went to overtime and lost, or they just lost by two, or they were in it and they lost by two because of an empty net or something like that. How close was this team this season, really? to having a lot more wins if they just would have had one more goal in games? Like, how many close games were there really for this team that they weren't just getting blown out of the water? Countless times. And there were times that they were tied in the third period against uh, top opponents. They played North Dakota a couple times back, and I believe it was January, and I want to say both games they were tied in the third period there. Uh, They opened at home against Minnesota State and had a third period tie. There were a couple times they were up by two in the third period against Alaska and Bowling Green and, and blew those leads. So I don't know what it, you know, what happened there, why it just seemed like they never could lock down a victory. I don't know if it's, it's a mental thing, if it's a coaching thing or what, but just so close so many times. And so you, you look at that and you think, all right, if they can at least put it together, you know, you flip a coin, you would see more W's and, and hopefully, um, like I said, hopefully Lance West and, and company can can help uh, help lock that down this year. Now, a big thing being in the South and kind of being on your own little island, like I've heard people talk about, um, I think I heard Cam Talbot talking about, like the closest road trip was 12 hours away. Eventually, in order to make this sustainable, you're going to need opponents nearby. For college hockey throughout the whole region, what kind of progress needs to be made there, and how can you kind of speed up that process? And I think this is something Justin can speak to as well. So, yeah, go for it. Yeah, the the closest (laughs) opponent is Bowling Green, Ohio, which I think is maybe a minimum seven-hour drive. I could be wrong on that, but um, and then from there, you know, you got the Michigan team. So there's not, like you said, not any close opponents had university of um had uah left college hockey entirely if you were to take a look at the college hockey map of the united states i mean there would just be this vast continuous land with no college hockey whatsoever so um you know we've heard about possibly the university of illinois jumping in there who knows about maybe vanderbilt but um i haven't heard much about progress from from teams in the south or even the lower midwest but I, I agree with you, Cam, that there needs to be more programs close by to make this a real deal. And, and that's the problem right now is that we do not have enough college hockey programs in the United States. That as we continue to have – and the power's flickering because the storm's arriving. <laughs> as, as we are continuing to produce more hockey players, more even American hockey players, but just more North American hockey players – there are less places for them to go. So the, the percentages aren't climbing like they should be. You should have more D1 college hockey programs coming up along with more D1 college eligible players coming up. And we don't have that. I mean, you, you add Long Island University, 
there's one. Adding 28 spots is not enough. We're talking we need an overhaul to we're needing five or six teams of college hockey to add here, to add places for these kids to play because we're losing them. We're losing them to, to Canadian juniors, we're losing them to, to Europe and everything. And if we want to develop more players here in this country, we need to have college hockey for them to be able to play because we're continuing to develop them. And it's, it's a perfect breeding ground coming from the, the NA or even the USHL if, if they want to and to go on and play college hockey. So we just need more of those programs here. And I know the NHL has tried to do that. USA Hockey, they're trying to work with USA Hockey to build these programs, but we need more. You think Arizona State is an independent. And sure, people want to travel to Arizona State to play them (laughs) because of where it is. It's a mini vacation for a lot of these kids. But then it's like Peyton said, it's a wasteland when you just, if you get rid of Arizona State and UAH, then you are just basically you're going as far west as the Dakotas and as far south as Ohio. <laughs> and that's troublesome here. That's troublesome because you don't have kids growing up to where they think that they can go play for the, their college hockey team that they grew up with. So imagine if an Alabama, a Georgia, uh, a Tennessee had college hockey programs that are playing D1. Imagine more of the Pac-12 schools, especially Southern California, which is a breeding ground for hockey players now in SoCal because of the Kings and the Ducks. Then Dallas, imagine if the, some of the universities down there in the Southeast Texas had D1 college hockey programs with the amount of players that they're breeding out there. So, and oh, I forgot Colorado. Sorry, Colorado has their D1 programs. Just just click. Uh, but, but still, it's, we need more here for kids to play. And because that's what we saw with UAH is that you have a lot of people saying, I grew up watching those games or kids saying, I grew up wanting to be just like a UAH player. I want to go play college hockey in my hometown that it's so strong there. Youth hockey is so strong in Huntsville that people just didn't realize it until it was almost going to be actually gone for good. Because it's not easy to bring it back. It's not easy to bring it back twice. That's two times now in a decade that we've almost lost the program. We've got to find a way to make it sustainable. We've got to find a way to grow college hockey in the South to where they have D1 opponents they can go to budget-wise that are going to be easier to travel to. So other universities, y'all got to step it up. Step it up big time. Now, what kind of changes or influence needs to be made in order to get some of those programs going because I know that's not something you can just urge someone to do they have to be personally invested how does it like where do you even begin with that money first (laughs) and then and then finding ways because the the, a a lot of what a lot of excuses that universities will come up will be title nine but that's an excuse they're using that as an excuse that is not a real reason because you can find ways for opportunities to be equal as well to find another program to bring along. Oh man, we've got to add two programs. Oh, <laughs> suck it up, make it happen. You're giving an opportunity to a college athlete to further education, play the sport they love and to represent your university. That's what it really comes down to is that you're breeding leaders for the future because that's mostly what college athletics really comes about is not preparing them for a pro lifestyle, it's preparing them to be a good leader. That's what college athletics are doing is that they're in shape, they're representing the university in a good way and they're becoming a leader. And that's what it's really about. And so you develop those programs, no wah, wah. Oh, we can't come up with two programs to make sure this is equal. Whatever, whatever, make it happen. There's money out there. There's so much money out there. Penn State, huge, huge donation for Penn State. In four years at Penn State, they made the NCAA tournament. Four years of a program going from club to D1 hockey and they made the tournament. Money helps, and there are plenty of universities out here that have plenty of big donors that can make this happen. Plenty. Looking at you, 
you know, Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. If you all really want to make this happen, you can make it happen. And it's getting closer. Georgia's getting closer. They have a, they're get, basically getting an arena built there in Athens. And so it's getting it close where they might be able to explore some of these opportunities, but it's going to take a lot of money. Peyton, anything to add to that? <laughs> I think you nailed it right there. Uh, especially the, I mean, it's the big one is money. Finding people to pony up the money to get these programs off the ground. And, um, and like I said, you mentioned the new Georgia arena, you know, maybe Vanderbilt could, could add on a D1 team if there was a, a smaller arena built as well. And maybe with the new AD there at Vandy, a lot of things could change. They've, they've got to change the athletic culture at Vanderbilt, that's for sure. It's got to change there because there's so many issues where Vanderbilt being a private school could be dominating in so many different ways. And it's no excuse if they're a private school and you have smart people because you have plenty of other schools that have similar types of academic needs that do really well in athletics and they I don't want to say they've gotten lucky in baseball but they have lucky that they have Tim Corbin there that makes sure that program continues to flourish I mean normally that probably wouldn't but because of Tim Corbin it does and kids people respect him he produces talent and he's a good person in the community and you don't just I mean that doesn't grow on trees like that so Vanderbilt could absolutely do it especially naturally being a hockey market they have plenty of money <laughs> I mean it's freaking Vanderbilt <laughs> And, I mean, they need all kinds of different sporting venues repaired and replaced all over the place. So, oh, yeah. why not do it? Why not one one big swing, get it going? Oh, yeah. um, and especially from other teams' perspectives, if you're hitting Nashville and Huntsville, it doesn't seem so bad anymore. Oh, yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that's an easy thing. <laughs> yeah. and, and we saw how popular college okay. hockey With the women's showcase that was here back in Thanksgiving mm – -hmm. When they've had college hockey here, I mean, I'm not sure if it's going to still happen, but remember this fall, we're supposed to have some D1 men's teams coming here to play a showcase, too. Again, not sure if that's going to happen, but <laughs> still, they chose Nashville. Yeah, I'll keep my fingers crossed. Anyways, that was my hostility part of Southern Hostility. <laughs> All right. Well, another big announcement that we brought on Peyton for, because he's very knowledgeable on the subject, um, NASCAR announced that, uh, you know, they will be coming to Nashville for a race. I don't know a lot. Of <laughs> yes, Nashville. Lindo. So that Nashville so I, super speedway. <laughs> that was my biggest thing. Like if you were to take a uh, push pin and look at a Nashville map and you're like, put this pin in the most inconvenient area for you to get to, like, 75% of the city, if not more, would put it exactly where Nashville Super Speedway is at. <laughs> the only saving grace is it's right along 840. That's, at least. That makes it just a little bit easier. But, yeah, it's way out there in the middle of nowhere. So I've lived here since 2011. The only time I recall being on 840 is when I went to the Renaissance Fair. Oh, come that's on. It. Well, that's, that's a you problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it's not in the city. There's, the, there's a reason why it's not in the city. It's 840. It's supposed to be the bypass. Like the actual bypass because 440 is nowhere near a bypass. <laughs> That's in the city. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Peyton, tell us a little bit about this track. And the reason why I asked that is because it's funny to hear drivers speak about this and fans as well. Because I'm still learning a lot about NASCAR. You know way, way more about this than me. But even seeing Chase Elliott saying one snooze vest here and bye-bye fairgrounds. So it's, I think, the kind of thing where drivers obviously are excited to come to N Nashville because they want the fairgrounds. 
to be the thing. And this is maybe a testing ground, even though different ownership. So what makes Nashville Super Speedway so much of a gray area for a lot of people and fans, even though they're excited about it being in Middle Tennessee, but the Speedway itself doesn't make them excited? Well, the Nashville NASCAR news came out of nowhere, especially when you see NASCAR date coming for the Cup Series. That, I mean, that's huge for Nashville to land the top division of NASCAR. Um, I would say that news probably hit me harder than maybe the UAH news did. Um, so out of nowhere. But then I dug a little further and saw Nashville Super Speedway. What? <laughs> it's so strange because that track has been sitting dormant since 2011. Uh, it ran races from 2001 to 2011. It ran the Xfinity Series, the Truck Series, ARCA, and had a handful of IndyCar events. And what Chase Elliott was talking about with it being a snooze fest is it's a little bit of a different track. It's a 1.3-mile track. It's um, what we call a tri-oval, um, kind of that oval shape, but it's got a little triangular shape to it. And it, it came along at the same time as two other tri-ovals of similar uh, shape and size. And those tracks just didn't quite produce uh, very exciting racing. Uh, Nashville itself is, again, it's uh, paved with concrete, not the typical asphalt that we see. And typically, there wasn't much side-by-side racing. It was uh, what we call one-groove racing, where everyone wanted to run the same spot on the track all the way around. And um, it was like that all throughout its history. And so now, the challenge is going to be, you know, what can you do if you bring the Cup Stars there? Uh, How can you create more exciting racing? I think no matter what, the enthusiasm is going to be there just because of the national market. Uh, but the next challenge is going to be to provide an, an entertaining product. Yeah, that's that's what I'm very curious about, too, because I, I just remember that was the whole reason they built this thing, because I went to school in Lebanon. Uh, so I went to college, and so I was right there. So I've driven by it multiple times. I remember driving by when they were doing testing, and then it became a storage facility for Nissan. <laughs> After they just store a bunch of cars in the parking lot, because it was next to nothing. I mean, there's no, no gas stations. They didn't develop the area like they probably should have by putting – potential hotels, restaurants, things like that. You are 15 miles away from a restaurant or a hotel or anything like that, which is fine, I guess. But a little bit of something would have been nice to have. And you're right. I mean, there's absolutely nothing out there. And you have to have something, you know, you have to, like you mentioned, a restaurant, hotel, something. Because you see that everywhere you go, any racetrack. Even Kansas Speedway has um, a casino out of turn two. It has a (laughs) soccer stadium across the street. It has stuff all around it. And, uh, I mean, National Super Speedway, we're not kidding. I mean, it literally has nothing outside of it. So, uh, hopefully we, we see some development out there as well because it, it will need it when the fans come in. Now, talking about this, too, I've seen plenty of people talking about banking and everything. What does that have to do with the track and, and everything, too, with the turns, with banking? Does that make it more exciting, challenging? What are people wanting when they're talking about that? Nashville is it's got a little bit of a lower angle to it, uh, the banking angle. And so uh, when, when it's lower like that, you have to slow down more going into the turns and slowly ride around till you get to a straightaway, whereas Talladega has very steep banking, and they're able to drive flat out all the way around. Uh, I'm not sure why it was called Nashville Super Speedway, because it's not a super speedway in, in the truest sense, um, not even close. It's, it's half the size of Talladega, almost exactly. Um, and, and there's... I talk about maybe a more entertaining product, though. Again, not very much side-by-side racing in the turns. We've seen some tracks put on this uh, compound called PJ1, which is basically sticky stuff that they put around the track. And uh, they tried it a few places. You can run different parts of the racing surface that maybe you weren't able to in the past. So 
I imagine they're going to be spraying a ton of that stuff when the cup cars come down uh, next summer. So with this too, I mean, people are talking, well, maybe, maybe this is a test for Nashville for the fairgrounds uh, to, to be one of those things, because that's what drivers talk about. I mean, the history with the, the fairgrounds track. And so we knew that there are probably some interest. So there's interest from NASCAR Nashville because that's where they had the awards of all places. You're having the awards in a place that doesn't have a race unless you drive four and a half, five hours East. So it's not even the same market when it comes to that. So with this as well, and I know you're very well versed with, with the fairgrounds track too. What makes the fairgrounds track so exciting to drivers and fans alike is because it's so small. It has so much history to it. Um, if, if you take away the Milwaukee mile, it's the oldest active racetrack in America. And it's places, it's a place where Dale Earnhardt, Richard Petty, all the legends cut their teeth. I mean, the Cup Series used to race there um, from the 50s until 1984. Uh, and Dale Earnhardt once told Dale Jr. at a young age, you know, if you really want to be a driver, if you want to learn how to do this, you need to go to Nashville. It's, it's a short track. It's just over half a mile in length. It's got, I think, 18 degrees of banking. And uh, it's, it just provides very exciting, flat-out bump-and-run racing that uh, NASCAR fans love. And uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, NASCAR started to kind of go away from the short tracks and go to the bigger tracks. And, you know, we've learned as time goes on that it's been a big mistake. And they want to go back to the more historic short tracks and there's no bigger example than the fairgrounds. Now, is this the type of situation where, because there's a lot of excitement regard, around the fairgrounds, but Dover Motorsports talked about this, like this is something they want to do long-term. They're investing millions of dollars into, um, you know, renovations at Nashville Super Speedway. Is this an either-or situation, or is this something where they could do both at the same time from NASCAR's perspective? How does that look? Because I, I can't recall anywhere else where there's two, tra two tracks in the same city. It's a unique situation. We've never seen that in the Cup Series, running uh, two venues in the same city. And uh, like you mentioned, Dover Motorsports. Uh, I, before this news dropped, I didn't know that they still even owned the facility. Uh, you know, around 2010, 2011, they closed Nashville, they closed Gateway Motorsports Park, and they closed Memphis Motorsports Park. So they closed down literally all my home tracks. But uh, yeah, they are putting a lot of money into this. They want to see this succeed. Um, and that's where the four-year deal comes in. NASCAR's standing along with them. I think uh, they needed that slightly longer-term buy-in to, to do this because they're taking a date away from their um, flagship track, Dover, uh, Dover International Speedway. And uh, like you said, they're putting millions into this. And there, there's going to be some work that needs to be done. The track's been sitting dormant for 10 years without any TLC. Um, as far as the fairgrounds go, yes, they're working with a different company, uh, Speedway Motorsports, which, which owns Atlanta Motor Speedway, Charlotte, Sonoma, Kentucky, places like that. And it would take a completely different deal to get them on the schedule. Um, but the demand is there, so it's going to be interesting to see if they do indeed run the fairgrounds and the super speedway at the same time. It's never really been done before. So with Dover saying, Hey, you know, we're going to take one away from our flagships in Dover and investing in Nashville. Is that saying, Hey, we realize that Nashville is a very underserved market when it comes to NASCAR racing, that there are plenty of fans there, that there's a market there for people that it's saying that if or in order for us to grow the sport, we need to go to a place where there's demand for the sport. Very much so. Nashville used to be one of the top markets in Nashville or in, NAS, in NASCAR. 
Uh, I think in the 90s, there were a lot of shows that were based out of Nashville. Um, you had the Nashville Network, TNN, that, that uh, was based out of Nashville and covered a lot of races. And, uh, you know, for some reason, the Nashville market kind of went by the wayside. But we've seen Nashville be the, the it city for the past handful of years. And it's attracted more fans for the Predators, more fans for the Titans. It's attracted Major League Soccer, uh, quite possibly Major League Baseball. And so I think even if the history wasn't there, uh, Nashville is still a market that um, people want to be in anyway. And, and the NASCAR Cafe was also a thing. <laughs> what? For a few short years, yeah. yes. There was an I think opera, it's, uh, the Tequila Cowboy now? Well, yes. And then there was a, one that was a cafe in Opry Mills where they had the racing simulator cars in Opry Mills Mall as well. And that only lasted, I think, a couple of years. And it was expensive, but it looked pretty darn cool. So, <laughs> yeah, Tequila, yeah, I think you're right. Or is it Jason Aldean's now? Is that yeah, it probably is. Changed so know. many names from, from people selling out. Uh, <laughs> so, so, okay, this is putting you on the spot now, too, just because this is something that's a timely topic and everything, too. And we, we had the, the issue with, with Kyle Larson. Um, that happened what can NASCAR do because it is one of those sports that has seen a diminishing fan base obviously as a lot of the older white crowd dies off you need to find ways to attract new fans what is a way for NASCAR to attract newer fans to make it approachable for new people and to make it approachable to where it becomes a more diverse fan base you make a point around the Kyle Larson thing. You look on social media and you see the reaction to people um, talking about when Kyle Larson got axed or how NASCAR is, is stepping up in this time of, of standing up to racism. I mean, a lot of the feedback, if you look on their Facebook pages, is, you know, I've been a fan for 30 years. I won't watch anymore. Well, good. Good riddance. You know, we need to weed out people like that. Um, as far as newer fans, I think you're starting to see NASCAR gain more of a presence on social media. You're starting to see the drivers that used to not show very much personality all start to show themselves. Uh, you see the, the iRacing getting promoted a lot. Um, I think a lot of it's going to come down to promoting around the video games for kids and social media, you know, when you market around that, you make success uh, just about in any sector. So uh, the social media presence, I think, is really going to drive a lot of that. And if, if somehow you can get people to go to their local tracks, uh, sometimes all it, it all takes us to go into one race at a local track, and that you know that brings more NASCAR fans as well. So, Gumpy, who's your driver? So, my one NASCAR memory is when I was a kid growing up in Northern California. My dad and grandfather took me to Sonoma Raceway for qualifying, so we saw one car every four and a half minutes go on by. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's one of the, like, road tracks that's in NASCAR. There aren't too many of those. So we just watched one corner. And uh, there it goes. Um, I remember liking Jeff Gordon a lot. But just because he had the cool car. He had the Pepsi Star Wars car. I remember that. Um, oh, there it goes. <laughs> very nice. Justin is holding up a... Uh, that's uh, Alex's, by the way. Oh. Alex, Alex was a huge Jeff Gordon fan. Yeah, Jeff Still. Gordon uh, pop figurine. My Chase Elliott one is, is back there. Gotcha. So, that's yeah, my boy. You, it's wrecked. <laughs> Justin, it, it, you... it got wrecked by the Kyle Bush Funko Pop. Oh, sorry. Chase Elliott's in the pit, you know. <laughs> um, 
do you remember the Star Wars Pepsi car from back in the day or any other of the crazy marketing on the cars? Oh, gosh, I don't. I'm sure Peyton remembers way more. What he's I remember, yeah, they, they had that. Anytime I, I go in a junk store, I'll see usually two or three of those. They've got that, and then they've got the Jeff Gordon uh, Superman one, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that one. Um, Peyton, um, what is your fondest NASCAR memory from your long history of being a fan? Oh, gosh. Uh, there's countless ones. Um, I guess the first one that comes to mind is is uh, I wasn't a Dale Earnhardt fan at all. I, I had friends that were, but I thought they were a bunch of chumps. And I thought, you know, Dale, Dale Earnhardt's such a cheater. And then I remember watching him at Talladega in 2000. I was about seven years old, and I watched him go from 18th to first in four laps to win the race. And, and that's really where I, I started to gain respect for him. Uh, so that's an early memory that comes up. And then I didn't go to any races until 2016, which was the ARCA race at the National Fairgrounds. And when I went, I thought, oh, my God, you know, where have I been? So um, I've been going to at least maybe five or so races every year, uh, whether it be ARCA or some kind of NASCAR event. But, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's been, been a long journey and, and too many memories to, to recall. Hopefully my next race actually finishes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you make it past one stage. Oh, God, so frustrating. It's so frustrating. It's also been frustrating, I mean, with Chase Elliott. He's, had, he's been a very consistent driver this season. So many times where he could have just been one little thing and could have pulled it off, but nope. He cooked it going to turn three at Bristol, man. Just no regard for human life. So, so, so speaking of Bristol, that's why people love Bristol is because of exactly what we saw last weekend with how things can change so quickly on a short track like that, right? I mean, that's what makes it exciting. That's what fans want is that where th- anything can happen and you just never know. Yeah, and, and short tracks, um, you know, guys are closely together. Sometimes you actually have to beat and bang if you want to make any ground. Um, lap traffic, uh, if, if there's a – Slower cars in front of the leaders, they have to dodge and maneuver around them. Sometimes that can create chaos. Uh, there's always something to look out for on a short track. It's, it's much more rough and tumble than what you would see at the Nashville Super Speedway or some of the bigger tracks. Shoot, was it even Kurt Busch that got in an accident and he still plays pretty high? Hey, sometimes if, if you beat it up a little bit, if you can still go, uh, you know, aerodynamics don't matter at those short tracks. As long as the four wheels are still on it, you, you can still go for it. Jeez. So I do have one question. <clears throat> one thing we know a lot about in hockey is the casual fans always go to a hockey game being like, I want to see somebody fight. And that almost never happens. I feel like there's a very close parallel to um, racing where if you go to a NASCAR race, you want to see a big crash and cars flying all over the place. Or a fight. <laughs> or a fight. Sometimes both. <laughs> Um, do you feel like there's a similar parallel where like maybe the crashes and stuff don't really interest you because you're more of a serious fan, but, um, stuff like that is beneficial to attract those newer fans. I mean, it's, it's a necessary evil. You you know that there are people that are going to come in and say, okay, I'm I'm only going to watch for the crashes. I will say there is nothing like seeing a crash in person. It's, it's, uh, quite interesting uh i think uh, your human side does come out at times when you wonder if the person really is okay uh but yeah that, that it doesn't shock me at all that that would take uh, something like that for the casual fan you see it in the promos too you'll see 
a race getting promoted on TV commercial and you'll see a slideshow of, of crashes here and there, but uh, that's definitely a big part of it. I want to see a fight. <laughs> I mean, and, and it happens pushing and shoving matches. It's, it's intense. <laughs> and so I was at the 2016 gateway truck race and the guy that was sponsored by Zaxby's and the guy that was sponsored by Allegiant Airlines got into a little bit of a fist fight. Uh, if you go back and look at it on YouTube, it's it's a little silly looking, but uh, <laughs> I couldn't tell that from far away. I just saw a couple of guys rolling around on the ground uh, trying to get shots at each other. And my, that's my sponsorship works <laughs> because he remembers the two sponsors. I'm telling you, man. They even got uh, Jim Ross favorite. to commentate over it. <laughs> my personal favorite is as the car is wrecked on the sideline, the car that wrecked them is driving by and they throw their helmet at the car. That's my personal favorite. I mean, you used to see guys uh, run out after the drivers and try to pull on the window net or something back in the day. Uh, and it's kind of changed. We saw someone uh, die as the result of that. So we don't see that uh, anymore. There are rules against that, but uh, you can go back and find old clips on, on YouTube for that, for sure. I mean, I really tend to love Chase Elliott's salute to Kyle Busch. Oh, he was just telling me he's number one. Oh, yeah. Two number ones. <laughs> Very hard, hard number ones. Yeah, you guys need to warn me when the next NASCAR race is on because, like, I never know when they're on. And then I'm like, oh, this race just ended and everyone's really excited. Wish I could have watched that. Sunday. <laughs> okay. Right, Peyton? Uh, I was trying to think of where they were. They're going to be at Atlanta, which is uh, a big fast track. Here's the problem. We've been spoiled because we've had places like Darlington and Bristol to, to start things out. Now they're going to start to go with tracks like Pocono and Kentucky. So it's going to be a little bit of a snooze fest throughout the summer. But thankfully, we do have Talladega coming up on my birthday weekend on the 20th. So there's a saving grace there. Well, especially without fans. I know it's not as big of a deal, but still hearing a roar adds a little bit more to the element, I think, in NASCAR as well, especially in the victory victory circle, uh, victory lane, things like that, when the fans are cheering on or booing and the fan reaction, it still adds a little bit to it. And so I'm going to miss that for sure. But it's been neat to see what they do, though. I think what we talked about, too, and adding the drone camera and doing more of those different types of things, different looks. It's definitely given – I think it's been inspirational to some of the other leagues that are looking to come back. It, it kind of gives a, a bit of a vision for – Leagues like the NHL and the NBA, what they can get away with uh, when they come back. Um, I was hoping we'd see a little bit more on the NASCAR side. The drone cam has been uh, a godsend, but uh, hopefully they do start rolling in some more, um, some more different camera angles because they've got the room, they've got the space to do it. Oh, a little bit. <laughs> Um, speaking of other sports like you talked about, um, one thing I was thinking about that I think could be interesting, if you've got all these hockey players and basketball players um, under certain quarantine scenarios, <clears throat> why not allow them and their family to sit in the arena in the 300s and watch whatever game happens to be going on when they're not playing? Um, I think that'd be really interesting. I think it'd be cool to have some sort of fan reaction. You know, I don't think they'd be cheering for anyone or the other, but they might be like, you'd get the ooh and the ahs and stuff like that. Or the uh, scratched NHL players sitting in the stands and, <laughs> and taunting the other team. I'd love to see that. <laughs> 
yeah, that'd be really good. But, you know, usually those scratch players are the, uh, you know, deterrents. So I'm sure they'd have some very colorful language <laughs> to yell from wherever they have to be sitting. So I want to completely change topics here. Uh, Peyton, you have a very specific order of milkshake at cookout. Oh my god! <laughs> that I do because uh, cookout ice cream has zero taste. You gotta put some stuff in it. <laughs> so what is your, what is your order of a cookout milkshake? I get the Oreo cheesecake Hershey. So you get uh, cheesecake bits, Oreo pieces. They really put some big old Oreo pieces in there. They really, it's not like the little crumbles. I mean, you get like almost whole Oreos in there. <laughs> okay, and then. Uh, and then Hershey's syrup, man. So it's it's a deadly combination, almost literally. It's like, it's like you're having an Oreo cheesecake in a cup. My favorite thing is when you go to cookout and they're like, here's your straw. It's like, <laughs> it's going to be at least eight hours before I could go after this thing with a straw. Especially the chunks they put in there. You can't suck that Oreo chunk up through a straw. Unless it's a bo- like with, with boba. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's impossible. All right. What else you got? Uh, um, I think that's it. Unless you guys have any other pressing topics you want to bring up. Um, let's talk Attack of the Clones. No, I'm kidding. Dear God, no. <laughs> yeah, Jack. I'm, I'm not Jack, Justin. <laughs> if I know anything, Peyton is really knowledgeable about the MCU. So let's talk about how he feels about the Sokovia Accords. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, let's get into theories about, you know, if we're transitioning into you know uh whatever uh, the secret war oh my gosh you know, i uh, wish i could provide a bs response to that but that just shows how behind i am i can't even do that i already caught i already caught him off guard enough when i mentioned cookout <laughs> <laughs> all right wrap it up <laughs> all right <clears throat> well this has been southern hostility thank you to our inaugural guest peyton turnage Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Oh, boy. <laughs> Bye, Cameron. Bye, Justin. Bye, Bye Peyton. Peyton. Bye, guys. Well, it's so hot to face that in this day and age Somebody's race can trigger somebody's race Somebody's preference can drive some total stranger To make somebody somehow feel the wrath of their anger Why don't we put it one for a show? Show her and put it to hell
Let's try to refresh it. It's time that we face it. Space is the tiniest of us. Try to refresh it. It's time that we face it. If we don't, then it will shame on us. Let's try to refresh it. It's time that we face it. 